Now, <clears throat> cardiovascular diagnostic and therapeutic procedure. I will begin with the diagnostic and therapeutic procedure for this cardiovascular system. Uh, this is the nursing care of clients who have cardiovascular disorders. We're talking about the nursing care for those individuals. And I will begin with the procedure because the procedures, um, they are unique to this system. Um, so when a client has a problem, how can we diagnose? How can a clinician diagnose the client problem? So that diagnosis or those diagnoses are made through particular procedures. If you miss the client procedure that will help them to diagnose them, it's costly. The client will spend more money and the client cannot be diagnosed. The client will be mistreated. Sometimes we cannot even figure out the client's diagnosis. I know of a, I know of a guy, he, 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 he passed away. He came from Liberia on a vacation. When he got to the U.S., he had lots of fever. Unfortunately, a lot of lab tests were ordered for him. The lab, those lab tests came back negative. They kept trying to find out what happened to him until he died. When he died, it was after his death, they knew that he had type or lots of fever. Now, because the symptoms were not picked up earlier, the impression of the clinician was missed. Um, so they kept ordering different lab tests that were not related to the client's condition. And the moment those, the moment the doctor had, had, had gone through all the tests and wanted to get the, the best test for him that, that matches his condition, it was late. So these things are very costly for clinicians. And if you as a nurse, you are far-sighted, you work on a unit, you can help the doctor through so many means. Choose a lot of means you can help the doctor. And the doctor will have respect for those nurses on a unit that can always help him or help her out. So we have to know our portion because they will come in and they will do their portion and we have to be there to do our portion as nurses. And that's why these procedures are important. When it comes to the cardiovascular diagnostic procedure, um, we want to evaluate the function of the heart, monitoring of the heart, the, uh, the enzyme that controls, uh, that are found within the body. We use um, different instruments to visualize the fuse and the lungs, uh, the fuse and chambers of the heart. We also look at the heart perfusion, how blood with O2 is being sent out to the various body parts. It depends on the heart capacity. Fluid status, the heart also controls fluid status. Also, it helps to pump blood and other nutrients to part of the body that would need it. It also helps at the, when there is an artery uh, problem, there's a blockage. And the blockage in the artery, this lab procedure, this diagnostic procedure can help us to diagnose those blockages, those, uh, those blockages, and it can help us to know where they are, then we can provide treatment for them promptly. <clears throat> this procedure will include, we we'll look at the cardiac enzyme. Cardiac enzymes are important in that uh, when there is an increment in the cardiac enzyme, there is an indication of an illness or there's a problem in there. So sometimes when a, when a client has like myocardial infarction, when there's an infarction, when there's an, 
when, when there's an angina occurring in the heart or around the heart area, there, there are other enzymes that are portion of the heart that can be increased. The heart has so many enzymes. You have the troponin, you have the myoglobin, you have those enzymes are all important in the heart or for the heart well-being. So you have to know the values of those enzymes that we're about to talk about. Then we will look at um, we'll look at the lipid profile in cardiovascular system. Lipids play a major role in the cardiovascular function because lipids are fats. The more they are accumulated along the blood vessels way, they cause what we call atherosclerosis. And when this occurs, the energy at which the heart will use to pump blood will become in, will, will be increased. And any increase in the force to pump blood, it will has a it will has an effect on the heart, which can lead to other heart defect or other conditions like hypertension. So we have to look at this lipids profile, the triglyceride, the um, the LDL, the, the low density, the high density, the HDL, the total cholesterol. These are things we have to look at how high they are, how high they can be, or how low they can be to cause problems for the body. Then we look at um, the echocardiogram. We look at like the EKG. How can we uh, look at EKG and know whether those strips are abnormal strips or they are normal strips? And if they are abnormal strips, uh, what are what are the need medication, the need doctor intervention, or the need just monitoring? We'll also look at it and be able to figure out those things. We'll look at um, angiography, cardioangiography. We'll look at um, vascular access devices. What, how can we use them? What, are, how are they important in monitoring cardiovascular disorder in our surrounding? These are things we'll look at. I will begin with a uh, um, cardiac enzyme and lipid profile. The cardiac enzyme. Cardiac enzyme and lipid profile and lipid profile. Now this is in the Sanders, and it is important to know this. You have to know this by heart. The cardiac enzyme and the lipid profile. In the in in your book, in the Sanders book, you have all these things in the on a laboratory result. When a client has a uh, BNP, what's happening? Increased BNP. If the client had increased troponin, myoglobin, those are all cardiac enzymes. What are the indications and what can we do? They are all in the Sanders book under uh, laboratory procedures. Now, cardiac enzymes are released into the bloodstream when the heart having ischemia. Every time there is a blood decrease in blood supply, there's a blood supply deprivation, there will be an enzyme released into the bloodstream. So that's why we do a blood draw and you, you, you do enzyme analysis and you know which enzyme is being released into the bloodstream. That means it is that condition that the client has that causing the client to have the heart problem or the ischemia. Now, also then a lipid profile provides for us um, how high or low our cholesterol level are in our body. Um, when we do cardiac enzyme, it helps, cardiac enzymes help us to identify or to diagnose some heart condition. Specifically, 
let the myocardial infarction. So MI in myocardial infarction, cardiac enzyme helps us a lot to diagnose myocardial infarction. What is also important here is um, there are a lot of cardiac enzymes, and I'm going to name them for you. I will give you some of their values, and you will have to go to the Sanders and re-honor the cardiac enzyme under there. There are a lot of cardiac enzymes in there. You want to make sure and know them. And now, what the, what the Sanders did for us that is very unique is the Sanders provided us not just with this cardiac enzyme. The Sanders provided us with the cardiac enzyme along with their indication, along with their nursing management, and a lot of pertinent information about, the car, about those cardiac enzymes. So when you read it, you will have a better and a good understanding, a better understanding about those enzymes and how they function and why are they increasing or decreasing in there. Now, I will start with the creatinine kinase MB. One cardiac enzyme we, is, we talk about is the CKMB. CKMB. You've seen this. It's called creatinine. The creatinine kinase MB. Now, every time you see the ASE at the end of every, every word, it means that's an enzyme. <coughs> now, in the creatinine kinase MB, um, it is an ASO enzyme that is more sensitive, that is more valuable to the myocardium of the heart, the heart muscle. So, when there is a, mus a cardiac muscular damage, or cardiac muscular problem, we're going to see an increase in this particular uh, cardiac enzyme, the creatinine kinase CKMB. The value for the CKMB should be between 30 to 170 units per liter. Anything above that is a problem. Now, um, when there is an injury, when there is a myocardial injury, it takes the body Three to six hours for the heart to release this particular uh, insult this particular uh, uh, this particular um, it takes three to six hours for the heart to release this enzyme into the bloodstream so in three to six hours we can figure out we can know exactly that there is a cardiac problem there is a myocardial problem that is causing uh, the heart to release um, this particular enzyme into our body. Now, um, then <clears throat> it lasts for two to three days. Then it goes back to normal. Then we have the next one we have is the troponin. Now, the troponin should never be above um, 0 uh, 0 0.1 nanometer. It should always be below 0 0.1 nanometer. Troponin is also one of those cardiac heart markers that is very important when it comes to the heart well-being. Um, it gets on the rise. Um, when there's an injury, it takes two to three hours. It start elevate. It start getting elevated, and it takes ten to fourteen days. Uh, then it's gonna stop its elevation, and it will get lost from the body. So that is the troponin T. Then we have troponin R. Troponin R should be less than 0 
in the body. If, it, if there's a cardiac injury, it goes up above 0 0.03. It takes two, two to three hours also to get released into the bloodstream when there's a cardiac injury, and it takes seven to 10 days, it's gonna get lost from the body. Then we have the myoglobin. The myoglobin is, normal range is, it should not surpass uh, 90 microgram per liter. If it goes above 90, definitely it is high, meaning there's a cardiac injury. It takes at least um, two or three hours to get released into the bloodstream when there's a cardiac injury, and it lasts for up to 24 hours. It is gonna be sucked into the, into the uh, bloodstream. Um, then we look at cholesterol. Now the cholesterol, you have the LDL, which is the low density, the LDL. You have the HDL, which is the high one, is the good one, this is the good cholesterol. And this is the bad cholesterol. It's called LDL, low density lipoprotein. HDL, high density lipoprotein. Now, then you have the triglycerides. The triglycerides um, is also another another uh, 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 cholesterol level that is not good for the body. Then you have the total cholesterol, total cholesterol. Now these are just what you want to know their values. And uh, for the LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, the LDL transport cholesterol to the body cells from the liver. So it is bad because it because it is it from a transport cholesterol for the body to the liver, which when it accumulates it can cause liver impairment. That's how bad it is. So it is called the LDL. And this LDL should never ever, should never ever go above um, 130. It should be less than 130. For the LDL, it should not go above, it should be less than 130 for the LDL. Then the HDL. It is the good cholesterol because it is good it is found around the heart so if you eat oatmeal in the morning oatmeal has a high level of good cholesterol which is the hdl it helps to protect the heart from other conditions the the the, the, the hdl uh, protects the coronary arteries in the heart from heart disease it transports cholesterol from the body cells to the liver um that's how good it is um so that's that's the hdl and the hdl should always be below uh, it should be above 55. so because it is good it should never drop below 55. some book will say 60 but take it at 55 so it should always be above 55. if it drops below 55 it is low it is not good for the body so it is found around the coronary arteries it helps to protect the heart from other conditions. Um, then you have the triglycerides. Now, the triglycerides is also not a good cholesterol. Um, it is a. It should be at a particular level. It should. It should not go above 160, and it should not drop below 40. So, for the triglycerides, is always be, is always between 40 to 160. That's the level of the triglycerides. And this triglycerides. Um, what is important about it is that it evaluates the client's risk for heart disease. So if the client at risk for other heart condition, this particular 
triglycerides gave us those indications. Then we have the total cholesterol. Now, the total cholesterol should be less than 200. It should not be above 200. It should be less than 200, the total cholesterol. Now, these values, you have to know them for the anchor. They are in the standards. Look at them and you understand them more. Then we have the uh, <clears throat> we have the next procedure is the stress testing. How do we do stress testing on the heart? Now, for the stress testing, let's look at this, let's look at stress testing. Now, for stress testing, stress testing. For stress testing, um, the client will exercise the cardiac muscle by using a treadmill. That's where we use a treadmill. We walk on a treadmill or we, or we walk fast on the treadmill. Now, this will provide information regarding workload of the heart. All we want to do is that we, we want to see how much workload can the heart withstand. So, you will have a treadmill and the client will get in the treadmill and will start the treadmill and we'll see how, how many, how, what's the time frame the client can take to walk on the chamber faster, and then the heart will begin to work, and at what time the client will feel tired, meaning, the, meaning that's the amount of workload the heart can withstand. So that's how the, the, this particular uh, stress testing. The test should be discontinued once the heart rate reaches a certain level that the client cannot tolerate is discontinued. Um, when the client becomes too tired, or the client is disabled physically or physically challenged, or the client cannot finish the test, then we stop it. Then the provider will come in and prescribe the test to, to, uh, to be done as a pharmacological stress test. The chemical stress test, you can also do it in that. Now, the test can be when a client has angina, you can do for them uh, this particular stress test. You can also do for them heart when the client has heart failure. When the client has MI, myocardial infarction, when the client has some other form of dysrhythmia, any irregular heart pattern or heartbeat, the client can do the test to check whether the client is okay or not. Now, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> for, the, for this procedure, the client needs to sign an informed consent for this stress testing. The client needs to understand the procedure and the nurses need to explain to the client what the procedure is about. And uh, the client needs to wear comfortable shoes, electric shoes. The client needs to also wear clothes that are very much comfortable that will not put stress on the client's body. Um, <clears throat> if we prescribe for the client chemical test, which is a pharmacological uh, stress testing, if the client is doing the pharmacological stress testing, um, the client will take certain medication. Um, the client will take um, uh, <coughs> the, the client will take <coughs> excuse me. The client will take this heart medication, adenosine. The client will be given adenosine. The client takes. <coughs> ad <coughs> The client will take adenosine. The client will take um, another drug, or the the client will take dobutamide. Dobutamide. 
or the client would take um, diparadimol, diparadimol. These are drugs the client would take instead of uh, walking on a treadmill. So we can do it two ways. We can do the physical test by walking on a treadmill or we can do the chemical test by taking medication. And these drugs will make the heart to work and we'll see to what extent the heart can tolerate setting work low. That's the entire reason why the test is being done. How much work low can the heart withstand? That's why the test is being ordered. So um, tell the client to fast two to four hours before the procedure and to avoid tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine before the chemical test. Tell the client to get adequate rest the night before the procedure because the heart is going to work and we'll see to what extent the heart can work. That's the reason why the test is being ordered. Now, then we look at um, other procedure also. Like, let's look at angio, angiography. Now, in angiography, uh, let's look at angiography. There is something about these graphics that is unique to almost all the tests that ends in graphy. So angiography, other things you will see in here like this. Now, for the angiography, um, it is what we call cardiac cauterization. So when you hear angiography, cardiac angiography, or here it is the same as cardiac cauterization. Some book would love to use uh, angiography, some would use cardiac cauterization. Now, it is a diagnostic invasive procedure. It is used to evaluate the presence and degree of coronary artery blockade. <clears throat> That's about the test. So the test is used to diagnose the extent of coronary artery blockade in the heart. Now, on this procedure, you want to understand which ones are invasive, which ones are non-invasive. It is important to know which ones the client will need to fast, which one will require the client not fasting. If the client is fasting, what are the requirements for fasting? How many hours? Most often it is between four to, four to eight hours fasting. The client can do this procedure. So you have to know these things to your fingertip. Now, for the angiography, for the angiography, um, what is important in the angiography is it's also done on our lower extremities to determine the blood flow in those areas it is a blockade so like uh, somebody having a uh, deep vein thrombosis um when they have when the person has a leg surgery or other surgery that will cause they put a client at risk for blockade venous blockade we can do for them the angiography on the extremity to, to, to diagnose the problem um we also this angiography it involves the, the insertion of catheter into the femoral area. Sometimes they will insert into the femoral area uh, because it's, it, it is a catheter. It is the, they will put it into the femoral area, into the femoral vein. So um, this, this this is a, this is uh, an individual, and the femoral area is around here. So they will insert it here, and they have a vein here. 
that is threaded straight towards the heart of the body. So that's how they're going to have this done here. So it goes in the femoral area. Um, and then uh, in the femoral area, it is incited in there. Sometimes also they put it in the brachial area. The brachial vein can be used. They either use the femoral vein or the brachial vein to insert this particular catheter. Now, um, what is important also is the coronary artery um, occlusion are identified. They're going to use a contrast medium or a contrast dye. Now, that's why I said almost all the graphic tests have a dye along with it. They will use a contrast medium or a dye. Now, if the client is using this particular procedure, this dye here, most often it has an iodine base. It has an iodine uh, base. Now, if it has an iodine base, meaning clients who are looking to share fish um, cannot use this particular procedure with the dye in use. They might use other ones. And uh, what is important for the dye to be used is that uh, when we use the dye in this, in this procedure, it helps us to locate <coughs> where the thrombus is or, what, or where the blockade is in the artery. That's why we use the dye. So the dye is injected into the system and it flows around. And then when you see it flowing and wherever there's a blockade, you will see it discolorated. And that's how they pick it up where the client has a blockade in the body or in the veins or in the arteries. Now, before the client do this angiography, you remember we talked about it when we're doing, uh, I think when we're doing the nervous system, we said that in angiography, when the client, before the client can use a dye, we need to do the client kidney test because the kidneys is the organ that will help to what excrete this dye from our system. So if the client is having kidney impairment or kidney failure, it becomes difficult for us to what excrete the dye from the system after the client has uh, after the client has taken or, or after the procedure. Now, what we want to understand on a, uh, in this procedure is. Um, this can be used when a client has um, unstable angina. We can also use it when there is uh, to confirm and locate the extent of heart disease. We can use this particular angiography. Um, the procedure, the client needs to fast for eight hours um, because the client will lie down flat during this procedure and there will be risk of aspiration. And that's why the client needs to fast for the procedure. Um, we need to obtain vital sign. We assess for iodine or shellfish allergy. Uh, if the client is in contrast medium or media, uh, we assess for kidney problem, like I said. And all these things are done when the client is before the client goes for the procedure. Now, during the procedure, we administer sedative or analgesia as prescribed and we we'll monitor the client vital sound continuously in the client heart rhythm. We'll make sure that the client is prepared for any intervention if there is a dysrhythmia. The client needs to be, we need to be prepared for that intervention. And that's why you have all those cardiac monitor, monitors in the surgical room to monitor the client heart rate, the client pulse, the client body, everything the client goes through in there, it is being monitored by someone who stands to monitor them while the procedure is being carried on. Now, then after the procedure, 
um, it takes, we, we, we monitor the virus sound every 15 minutes for four hours. That's the first one. After the procedure, we monitor virus sound. We monitor virus sound every 15 minutes for at least uh, four times. So we monitor every 15 minutes times four, which is like one hour, right? Then we monitor the virus sound every 30 minutes times two, which is another one hour. Then we monitor the virus sound, then we monitor it um, every hour, every hour times, uh, times, I think, times four. We monitor it every hour uh, times four, and then every four hour. And then the last one will be monitor virus sound every four hourly. This is the routine of monitoring virus sound for individuals who, who, who has had a critical procedure. So every 15 minutes, four hours, every 30 minutes, two hours, or, or two times, I mean, every hour, four times, and every four hours until discharge. Now, um, we also maintain the client on a bell rest. We assess the grown area. If the client did the femoral catheterization, we monitor the grown area. If the client did brachial catheterization, we monitor the brachial site for bleeding. And also, after 48 hours, we begin to monitor them for signs of infection. Um, we also look at the client Peter pauses, the color, the temperature, which can be uh, can show when there is thrombosis. We can see from those areas, from the Peter pauses or the, the color of the Peter pause and the temperature. Monitor that. Um, the client will also we conduct cardiac monitoring for the client when the client if, to, to monitor if the client is having dysrhythmia. We administer antiplatelets or traumatic agents. You remember we talked about antiplatelets or traumatic agents. We said there is a difference between anticoagulants, like uh, like uh, you have uh, comandine, heparin. Those are anticoagulants. We said there's a difference between the anticoagulant and the antiplatelets or the thrombolytic agents. Now, for the thrombolytic, for the thrombolytic agents, these agents can dissolve blood clots. Like you have the artiplase, they can dissolve blood clots. For the anticoagulant, heparin, coumadin, enosoparin, fondosoparin, all those ones are anticoagulant. Those medications will not dissolve blood clot. They will, um, for them, what they do is they prevent new clot formation and they also, uh, they also suppress the old clots that have been uh, formed already from getting larger. So they prevent old clot from, from getting larger and they prevent new clot formation. The traumatic agents are the ones that will dissolve the clot. So no difference between those two blood medications because the angler will ask you, a client who is on active place asks the nurse, how am I or how will this medication work for me? 
What could be the nurse best response? The best response for active place, which is a traumatic agent, they can work by dissolving blood clots. And for heparin, they work by two ways. One, by either preventing new clot formation or they prevent smaller clots from getting larger. Because there is an instance wherein you could have a little clot that remains in the insaculatory system for a, with no time it grows. It becomes a bigger clot, which can be very much fatal in the case of clot formation. So you have these medications. We use them under here. And uh, you want to make sure you administer the articulate, uh, the traumatic agents as prescribed to prevent clot formation and re-stenosis, like aspirin, clopidogrel, um, tyclopidine, heparin. These are drugs we want to administer as prescribed. You have like the aspirin. If it is prescribed, the client should take it as prescribed aspirin. You have clopidogrel. You have the heparin. Um, you also have the the last one is the tyclopidine. These are all drugs that can help us to reduce the risk of clot formation after the client has completed angiography. Now, you want to make sure you administer the client. Um, uh, the client, if the client needs angiolytic agent, the client is anxious. The client takes angiolytics agent. If the client feels anxious, the client will take that. Um, you also want to make sure that uh, the client takes um, every drug that is prescribed for them. Monitor the client urine output and administer IV fluids. Look at the client. Um, the client, the color of the urine, sometimes it might carry the contrast dye. You want to make sure that the client is educated on the following one. Leave the dressing in place for the first 24 hours after discharge. It is important. After angiography, we do not remove the dressing until after 24 hours. After the client will, will, will take the dressing home. If it is a brachial procedure, it remains on their, uh, in their brachial area. If it is, if it is femoral, it remains there the client going for 24 hours you also want to make sure that uh, um, the client avoid any strenuous exercise for at least the prescribed period depending on what the doctor will say to the client you want to also make sure the client should report any immediate uh, bleeding at the site where the catheterization took place if it is at the brachial site the client should report it promptly if it is at the femoral site the client should report it promptly. Um, we also want to make sure the client cannot lift, lift anything heavier than 10 pounds. So after the surgery, or after this procedure, the client can lift less than 10 pounds. Anything above 10 pounds, the client cannot lift it. It is important to remove this particular figure here in this, uh, under this procedure. Uh, which is, so you know 10 pounds is 4.5 kg. Now, you want to also make sure the client who have stent placement, they will receive anticoagulation therapy for six to eight weeks. Tell the client to take the medication at the same time each day. Have the client to do that regular laboratory test to do the blood serum level of what the client is taking, like the anticoagulant. Have the client to avoid 
any activity that will cause them bleeding, they should kind of use soft toothbrush. They have to wear shoes out of bed. Encourage the client to follow lifestyle guidelines. Manage the client weight and other things. These are important things the client would need to do if the client completes the angiography. And you remember we did the we did this same procedure in the neural system. We talked about those complications. And one was cardiac tamponade. Now, cardiac tamponade, it is a complication of the procedure. It is also a problem by itself. What is cardiac tamponade? In cardiac tamponade, um, it results when there is fluid piling up into the pericardial sac. So where um, the heart lays, in, the heart is in a bag. In that bag, you will see fluid accumulating in that sac. And that's what we call cardiac tamponade. So one of the complications after, after this procedure will be cardiac tamponade. Um, so in this case, the client is going to have hypertension. Let's remember these symptoms very well. The client will have hypertension. When the client has cardiac tamponade, the client will also have um, the client will have jugular vein distension. They will have the jugular vein distended. The client will have muffled heart sound. Muffled heart sounds. When the client has cardiac tamponade. The client is also going to have, um, the client will have paradoxic, uh, parad paradoxical pause. Um, the client will have called paradoxical pause. You'll see this. In, the client will have paradoxical pause. Now, in here, it is wherein there will be a variance of 10 millimeter per mercury or more in systolic pressure between expiration and inspiration. So there will be a variance of more than 10 millimeter per mercury of the client pressure when it, between expiration and inspiration. That's what we call paradoxical pause when it comes to the cardiac tamponade. And then um, also under here, in the cardiac tamponade, you want to notify the doctor as soon you pick up these things. And in the end class, guess what's going to happen? Like I always told you people that, that are in the end class, the end class might not use the word cardiac tamponade. What the end class uses majority of, the, majority, majority of the time is, the end class will tell you that a client just came from completing angiography, or the client who, who did angiography three hours ago or 24 hours ago, develop the following symptoms. The client is having decreased blood pressure. The client has the, the neck vein distended. The client has uh, the pulse, there's a pulse variant of 15 or 20, and there is a muffled heart sound. What is the nurse immediate action? Now, in, in this condition, or the anger might ask you, what could be the possible complication of the client's problem or the client's present condition? So you have to understand first what conditions or what are the complications that come, that come after the procedure angiography. Now, then you have to reflect 
What are the complications? Then you think on those complications. Then you think they have to do analysis. Which complication will have these symptoms? You analyze them, then you will get on that it is cardiac temporary that's, ha that's having these, uh, these uh, symptoms. Then you also know it is cardiac temporary, or you know what to do. In this case, the anchor says, if you observe or if you figure out that the client is having any one of these problems to be at, uh, an, uh, to be a combination of cardiac temporary, the first thing you do is you immediately inform the doctor for the client. Um, you obtain the chest x-ray and the EKG to confirm the diagnosis. Prepare the client for pericardiosynthesis. 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 Now, this is a long word. And in the English, sometimes we use um, pericardiosynthesis. We use the words phonetics to understand the meaning. Now, pericardio. Cardio means the heart. Peri means the parameter of the heart or the heart surrounding. The parameter of the heart is called peri or the heart, the heart field or the heart surroundings. Synthesis. We've done procedures that end in synthesis. Thorax synthesis. What happened just in thorax synthesis? In thorax synthesis, we are removing fluid from in the thoracic cavity. So in the case of pericardiosynthesis, now in what happened in this condition? There is a fluid accumulation in the pericardial sac of the heart in the case of cardiac tamponade. That's what we call cardiac tamponade. There is an accumulation of fluid within the heart sac, in the heart perimeters. So to drain that fluid out, we do a procedure called pericardiosynthesis, like we did thorax synthesis. Wherein the client will sit and bend his back or her back on the table at the bedside and will insert uh, a character into the client thorax and drain out fluid or blood in there. In the case of thorax synthesis, that's what happened in the case of pericardial synthesis. So you look at the war and you know the war ending, the subject of the war or the war prefix can give you a meaning of what the war is, even if you don't know it. Um, we'll do this thing for the client and make sure the client is in good, good, uh, the client is in good, good condition. Um, the client can also have hematoma formation. Uh, the client can have formation of hematoma where there's a blood clot can form near the site of insertion. So if the client had a brachial pulse insertion for the procedure angiography, the client will have a hematoma formation around that site. Or if it is a if it is a femoral area, the client could also have inflammation or or or, 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 or a formation around the femoral area. And when you have hematoma, assess the groin area or where the hematoma is. Um, you hold pressure for uncontrolled bleeding or oozing. You apply pressure. You go ahead and monitor the peripheral circulation for the patient. And you notify the doctor. Listen to the procedure. When there is a hematoma, you want to cover the place and provide pressure to the site to prevent bleeding. The next thing you do is you you want to like uh, go ahead and call the doctor. So you have to perform an action before calling the doctor when there is a risk when the client has a complication called hematoma. 
Then we have what we call restenosis of treated blood vessels. Restenosis. The client can also develop what we call restenosis. Um, restenosis. Or not here. This is important for RN. It's very important for RN. That's why I'm going in detail like this. For LPN, LVN, uh, you can know what is angiography, but this one are not bigger than you have to know about them. Now, for our ends, this, uh, when you talk, talk about restenosis of treated blood vessel, it means clot reformation. So, after we dissolve the first clot, we had newer clots coming in after the first clot this dissolution. So, you're going to have reformations of, of clots um, in the coronary artery which can lead to immediate or severe weeks after the procedure. So after, uh, sorry, uh, several weeks after the procedure, several weeks after the procedure, the client can go through restenosis, newer clot formation after the procedure, that can happen. In this case, you want to assess the client EKG patterns, know the client heart pattern, the client heart strips, you want, you want to, which can most often occur with chest pain. So the client will have chest pain. Chest pain is a cardinal sign of restenosis after angiography. The client needs to be assessed for these things. Then we have notified the doctor immediately when you've done your assessment and it is confirmed that the client has restenosis. You want to go ahead and also prepare the client for a return to go back to the OR and do another angiography. So the first one was done. Based on the first one, the client is having complications like restenosis, meaning the client is having newer clot formations, multiple clot formations. So when this is confirmed through your EKG, the client doctor needs to be notified and the client needs to be prepared and sign another informed consent and the client be rolled out back to the OR for another angiography. The client can also have what we call uh, retroperitoneal bleeding. Retro, the client can have retroperitoneal peritoneal bleeding. Now, what is retroperitoneal? It means at the back of the peritoneum. The peritoneum is the entire abdomen. The entire abdomen, what is in there is called the peritoneal cavity. Now, at the back of this peritoneal cavity, there could be a bleeding. Now, the bleeding will not because the client is lying down in many cases after the procedure, there will be retro, meaning there will be bleeding that will set. Blood will set at the back of our, our abdominal organs, which we call retroperitoneal bleeding. Now, when this occurs, um, we assess for flanks pain. Now, after the procedure, the client will have flanks pains. When the client has chest pain, what's happening? In the case of chest pain, we take on restenosis. If the client has flank pain, now in this case, the client will have chest pains. In this situation, the client will have flanks pain. Flank pains will occur. That's what happened in here. The client will have flank pain, the client will have chest pain. In rest in restenosis, the client will have chest pain. In retroperitoneal bleeding, the client will have flanks pain on the client's side. There will be pains in the, on the client's side. So with this, um, we notify the doctor immediately. We administer IV fluid and also blood product as prescribed. Because the client will have blood loss in huge amount with this particular case.
Any question? We'll begin with our nursing care of clients who have cardiovascular disorders. To be specific, we will continue with the diagnostic and the therapeutic procedures for these conditions. So we'll start with the ECG or EKG as you want to call it. Um, cardiac electrical activities can be monitored by using the electrocardiogram. Um, in our heart, we have these impulses that flow through the heart that help us to uh, monitor the heart activities. The rhythm, the pattern, all those things are important for us to make sure that uh, we understand how the heart is working. Um, to understand that, we have to go through all these things and know, and know them. The heart carry out these electrical activities um, by monitoring some 12 lead EKG um, pattern, 12 lead. We do a 12 lead monitoring to give us how, to tell us how our heart is working to pump blood and do all those things that are required for us to live. Um, we do it through resting, through the resting EKG or ECG, or we could do it through ambulatory EKG, which is called the halter monitor. So if it is ambulatory, um, the client is not resting, the client is moving around, we do it through what we call halter, H-O-L-T-E-R, halter monitoring. Now, or sometimes we can do it through continuous cardiac monitoring or by telemetry. So through telemetry, we can also monitor the heart activities when uh, the heart, we observe the heart to have problem. We, when we use cardiac monitoring, whether it is the resting EKG or it is the halter monitoring or it's through telemetry or through any other means, our goal is to diagnose dysrhythmia. Dysrhythmia is irregular heart pattern or heart, or heart problems. We want to look at the chambers of the heart. The heart has four chambers. These four chambers of the heart are what we are observing to see what's happening. We have the right side of the heart, the right ventricle, else. the right atrial is the first portion upward coming from systemic circulation. Then you have the left atrium upward connecting to the lungs to get O2. And you have the red ventricle lowered below the red atrium. Um, this connects to the pulmonary artery that goes towards the lungs to give blood back to the lungs for oxygenation. And you have the right ventricle, um, so the left ventricle under the left atrium. This is where you have the aorta is connected and this pumps blood to the systemic circulation after the blood has been oxygenated. That's what happened in there. Now, so um, these are things that we try, to, we try to look out for, how enlarged these chambers are, because these chambers are regular, they are normal, and they provide for us regular heart pattern, regular shift. Everything is regular and normal when there is no illness. Um, when there is a problem, it tends to become enlarging. 
So when you do EKG, EKG finds out how enlarged these heart tumors are. Um, then we also do EKG when the client has myocardial infarction to know what, are the, or what is happening to the client. So if the client has myocardial infarction, there is an abnormal pattern of the EKG. Now, so in the end class, I want us to listen very keenly about this EKG and what I'm talking about today. Now, the first thing is we want to pick up one chamber enlargement. That's the first thing, chambers enlargement, the heart chamber when it is enlarged. What can we, or how do we detect the enlargement of the heart chambers on the EKG strip? How do we detect that? We'll look at that. Um, when a client has myocardial infarction, when there's an infarct creation in the, in the heart myocardium, how does the EKG strip appear? How, do, how does it appear? It is also one thing you, when you are doing the EKG, you got to understand how, how MI appears on the EKG. Now, another thing is it tells us um, where there's an, uh, there an injury or there's an infarct and also those imbalances or when we administer other cardiac medication. These are things we find out about the EKG. Um, when there is a dysrhythmia, when, there's a, when, there's, when, when, when you hear the word cardiac dysrhythmia, there is an imbalance or there is an irregular heartbeat occurring in the heart. That's why we are having cardiac dysrhythmia. Um, in dysrhythmia condition, it could be due to beat formation having auto pattern or beat conduction or the way in which our heart muscles respond to um, the commands by our body. Sometimes our heart will command, our body will, com our body will demand certain, uh, certain amount of blood and the heart cannot live up to those, up to those demands. Then there can be a problem that we can call dysrhythmia. Now, so um, nurses are liable to be familiar with cardioversion and other defibrillation procedures because these are procedures that we implement when a client has a regular heartbeat. So today we'll look at what medication can we administer when a client has some of these dysrhythmia or what procedure, whether it is defibrillation or cardioversion we can use when a client has problem with the with the heart, these are things we are supposed to know as nurses before the end, or even in our regular uh, nursing practices in the hospital or where we are. Now, so in the EKG, um, we use electrocardiograph. We use what we call electrocardiograph to um, monitor or recall our heart activities. Um, this, card, this, uh, this particular electrocardiograph, we connect it to wires, and those wires are what we call the leads. So you have 12 wires that we connect the electrocardiograph to, which we call the leads. So when you have EKG leads, we are talking about EKG wires. Those wires are attached to the, card, uh, to the patient thoracic cavity and to the patient legs and other body parts to recall the heart activities is what we call the leads 
and we use 12 of them, which we call the 12 leads EKG. Now, also under here, we attach this, like I said, to the, to, to the skin and other portion of the limbs. Um, in continual cardiac monitoring, so we have continuous cardiac monitoring, like when the client is in the telemetry unit. So we do continual cardiac monitoring for the client who is in telemetry. Um, that's what we do first. Continuous um, cardiac monitoring. Now, under continuous cardiac monitoring, um, it requires that the client be in close proximity with the monitoring system. That's why you see the client lying in the bed in the ER or in the uh, ICU, and the client is next to those uh, to those machines that monitor the client heart rate, the heart pattern. So, in continual cardiac monitoring, the client is required to be next to the monitor. That is the electrograph. Um, also, in continual cardiac monitoring, um, when a client is uh, for the for the telemetry, the telemetry will allow the client to ambulate while in the same proximity. So, in telemetry, the client remains next to the machine, but the client can wake up, they can stand up, they can walk around, but they will still be in close proximity with the machine with the with the electrocardiogram. Um, inform the client that receiving this continuous EKG monitoring, when they are receiving this continuous EKG monitoring, um, the monitor will not detect SOB. In EKG, when they are in EKG monitoring state, the monitor will not uh, detect shortness of breath, SOB. So, the nurse needs to tell the client that when you experience breath shortness, why on this monitor? Let us know. Because the machine does not detect SOB when you are on the machine. So they need to tell us that, oh, I'm having SOB. I can't breathe. I'm having shortness of breath. My breath is getting faster. These are things the patient needs to tell the nurse when they are on EKG monitoring. Um, also, there are other symptoms that can be due to shortness of breath. The client should be, uh, the client needs to report any symptoms that will worsen their condition while on the monitor. This is important because the client wouldn't know that when they are having SOB, they need to report it to the nurse. They need to know that and the nurses need to tell them these things. Now, in EKG, when we do EKG, what are those things that we're trying to like a monitor? What are those things we're looking for in the EKG? Now, let's look at a list of problems that are the indications for EKG. Let's look at the indication. Now, these indications are important. Why are they important? Because in the NCLEX, um, these are the major EKG pattern that the NCLEX will let you to know and know their diagram. How can we see SVC? Superventricular problem. If it appears on the EKG strip, how can we detect it? How can we detect um, the QR complex being abnormal? How can we detect the uh, um, the P wave being abnormal? How can we detect when there's a heart block in in a type one heart block, type two 
how do we detect these things so it is important that we look at this indication and know exactly what are we looking for um in the ekg we need to know what is one sinus bradycardia sinus bradycardia and sinus tachycardia we need to know these two things on the ekg bradycardia low heart low heart rate tachycardia increased heart rate now we'll look at these things i will tell you the way in which you can detect sinus body and tachycardia in the simplest manner in some cases you just look at the hour the two hours between two different uh ek or uh, two 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 different krs complexes and you can detect whether the client is having sinus bradycardia or they're having sinus tachycardia and when you check the boxes you will see that when they are having bradycardia the heartbeat is lower than 60 beats per minute and you will see that you'll know that number two we need to also be able to detect atrial ventricular heart blocks atrial ventricular heart blocks we need to detect these things they are one block one block two block three we need to know what they are and how can we detect them the third one is we need to also know atrial fibrillation atrial fibrillation we need to know atrial fibrillation um, in our EKG strips. Now, the atrial is the P wave. So when you see atrial fibrillation, you will see that the P wave will not be normal. But how can we detect an abnormal P wave will be what we have to go over and see and detect them with the EKG, which we'll look at in subsequent time. Then the fourth thing you want to know about this thing is what is ventricular asystole? Ventricular um, asystole. Now, when a client has ventricular asystole, what is happening to the client? How will the EKG strip appear? How or what can we do for them? These are things we have to know. So it comes in two types. The first step in the NCLEX, the NCLEX will give you question, not drawing. A client who is having ventricular asystole what would the nurse do for the client and they will list for you cardioversion uh defibrillation get the client adenosine get the client uh different medication and they'll ask you what drugs can you do or what the nurse will do for the client that becomes just a ligature in the ekg question in the end class on the other hand they will give you a diagram they might give you four different diagrams and ask you which diagram represent ventricular asystole so you must answer what is asystole and how does it appear when a client is having ventricular asystole when they go under the 12 lead ekg what's going to appear on the ekg strips these are things we have to know for the anklet we also will look at premature atrial complexes we'll look at number five premature atrial complexes and we'll also look at sv or pvc premature ventricular complexes we look at the apac and the pvc premature atrial complexes and premature ventricular complexes. now for these questions my goal is to make us to know how to recognize atrial problems from ventricular problems whenever there is an atrial complication atrial heart problem of the ekg 
you will see the P wave will appear not uh, abnormal. Whenever there is a QRS problem with the with the uh, EKG of the of the heart, you will see that interpretation as ventricular problem because in the EKG pattern, in the EKG rhythm, when you have an EKG strip that comes in this format, like this, um, you have it like this here, and it goes up like this, and you have it like this. In this EKG pattern, whenever there is a ventricular problem, the ventricle of the heart is represented on the QRS complex. This becomes the arrow up here. This is the Q right here. This here is the S. So this QRS complex on the EKG rhythm represents the ventricles of the heart. And those ventricles are two chambers. If the heart is in this pattern, in this pattern, the two lower chambers are the ventricle. Here you have the right ventricle and you have the left ventricle. So when there is a problem with the lower heart tumor, this problem or these problems are interpreted by the QRS complex. So once you see an abnormal QRS complex, that means you are looking at ventricular heart disorders. That's what happened in here. And to detect uh, an atrial heart problem, you will detect the atrial problem by the P wave. This P wave, right? This is the P wave. So this P wave can tell us that, that the client is having atrial heart problem. This P wave right here. Now, and the P wave is always represented by the atria. You have the two atria up as the two upper chambers of the heart. You have the right atria and you have the left atria. So these two upper chambers, when there is or when there are abnormalities, these abnormalities are shown out to us on the EKG strip with an abnormal uh, uh, P wave. And the P wave has a particular abnormality that you're going to see. The P wave, there should be, it should cover three to small boxes on the pattern. Anything above five boxes is abnormal. Anything below five boxes is abnormal. So the P wave should cover five, three to five small boxes, which is equal to 0.12 to 0.20. That is it. But we'll go into that and tell you what all those numbering means on the EKG, uh, in the EKG study. The nurse must also know what we call supraventricular tachycardia. Supraventricular tachycardia. The nurse must know what is it, how it appears on the EKG uh, 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 monitor. And when it appears, what can we do? The nurse needs to know ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia. The seven one will be ventricular tachycardia. And uh, the F one is going to be uh, ventricular fibrillation. Ventricular fibrillation. Now, at the end of the day, there are 12 important EKG rhythms that I like my people to like know them because those are the 12 most common EKG rhythms that are going to appear in the end class. So if we know these 12 EKG rhythms, it becomes easier for us to understand, to recognize the pattern of the EKG at the level of the end class. And all these rhythms, they will tell you what the nurse will have to do in terms of uh, providing treatment regimen for, for the patient to be able to get it 
at the best time. Now, um, these are things we'll have to go over. So, um, let's look at something else. Let's look at, um, let's look at the various uh, heart, this, uh, uh, the various heart dysrhythmia or abnormalities. Now, these dysrhythmia are classified according to site of the dysrhythmia. The site of where the abnormal heartbeat is occurring, that's how we recognize, we categorize these dysrhythmia. Um, it can, it can, uh, dysrhythmia could be linked to big nine or all life-threatening problems, but we have to know them and, and, and provide the best regimen for these dysrhythmia. Now, when the client is having this dysrhythmia, um, rapid recognition and rapid intervention is our goal. So how can we recognize rapid condition, or rapid or fast-growing symptoms? How can we put in those measures that can arrest the situation and order to bring it back to normality? That is the goal under here. The treatment can be based on the cardiac rhythm. We do not have one treatment for irregular EKG. It's based on how the abnormality is, depending on what is happening. If it is ventricular, we treat it as ventricular. If it is uh, uh, if it is atrial, treat it as atrial. If it is between atrial and ventricular, we also have other sites of the EKG pattern that will show different conditions. And that's how we treat these conditions. Um, we can either do cardioversion. Let's look at the treatment method that I want, I want us to like, uh, get used to today. Now, when a client has problem, we can either use one cardioversion. I want you to write this down. Cardioversion. We can either do cardioversion for the client who has dysrhythmia. Um, we can do defibrillation. We'll do defibrillations. Or we insert pacemaker. We insert a pacemaker for the client who having uh, anomaly, abnormal cardiac dysrhythmia or cardiac dysrhythmia. Um, these symptoms of dysrhythmia in older client might have might come in with decrease or with increased activity. When a client increase or when a client have increased activities we will see more of these symptoms coming in because it's the heart. The more work you do, the more workload is placed on the heart. And that's why when you are doing a stress test, you run on, you walk on a treadmill or we give you those medication to put stress on the heart for us to see the amount of stress the heart can withstand during this period. Now, um, we, also, we also go ahead and provide for the client um, we go ahead and provide for the client other treatment method like the ACL like when like when you do when you do um, those CPRs and those life-saving procedure before you get a job these are procedures the client needs to follow for us to go through these things and help the client the best way possible now um, let's look at a few things Now, let's look at 
treatment for dysrhythmia. Now, when you hear the anger talk about dysrhythmia, 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 it means there is an abnormal heartbeat. There is an abnormal heart pattern. There is a problem or there is, there is an imbalance in the heart pattern, in the heartbeat, in the, the way in which the heart will conduct electrical impulses. There is a problem in there. That's what we call dysrhythmia. Now, when we're doing this dysrhythmia, don't look at the, the following dysrhythmia. Um, this dysrhythmia, one, let's look at um, bradycardia. When a client has cardiac, uh, uh, when a client has bradycardia, now bradycardia means any heartbeat lower than 60 is called bradycardia. Let's be straight with that. Any heartbeat lower than 60 is called bradycardia. In some cases, the anchors will not say bradycardia. They will give you a strip. They will give you an exhibit. And they will give you vital signs. And in those vital signs, you will see a heart rate less than 60. That's a sign of bradycardia. Or that is what we call bradycardia. In bradycardia, um, you treat if the client is symptomatic. You only treat bradycardia if the client is symptomatic, meaning the client is showing symptoms of low heart rate or low pulse rate. If the client is showing symptoms, the client is having problems while having the bradycardia, then we can treat it. If the client is not showing symptoms, we do not have to treat bradycardia. I'm going to be clear on that. Now, in bradycardia, um, we do two things. We either provide a client with medication or we do a procedure. If the client needs medication in bradycardia, it could be any other bradycardia. That's why I just wrote bradycardia. The client will take medication such as atropine. You know what atropine is? We discussed it in pharmacology. We discussed it just the other day. Atropine. The client will take atropine or the client can take asopriterinol. Aso Preterinol. The client can either take bra or they can either take this medication to correct the bradycardia atropines or also preterinol to arrest the bradycardia. That is to increase the heart rate. That's why these drugs are given. Now, if this medication cannot work for us, um, then the client will take, will give the client pacemaker. The client will use a pacemaker to make the heart to go back to normal. Now, these pacemakers, we'll talk about them in a few in, in a few minutes from now. It is important to know the level at which pacemaker can help the client. If the client has bradycardia, and the bradycardia less than 60 beats per minute. And the client is showing symptoms. The client is symptomatic. We give the client atropine, asoprotinol, or if those drugs cannot work, meaning the client needs something, a pacemaker in the heart that will initiate heartbeat, because that's the function of the pacemaker. So if the client was having a low heart rate, the heart rate kept dropping, dropping. We said the atropine, it did not help. We said the asoprotinol, it did not help meaning the client condition is severe, then the client would need a procedure to place in pacemaker. 
Now, if the client has three conditions, atrial fibrillation, that's one. If the client has atrial fibrillation, if the client has atrial fibrillation, um, one. If the client has supraventricular tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia, two. If the client also has ventricular tachycardia with pause, ventricular tachycardia with pause, meaning the client is having this problem, but the client still, the pause can still be felt. We can still palpate the client pause. In these three conditions, if the client has any of these conditions, the client will take medication-wise, the client can take one, amiodarone, amiodarone, that's one, two, the client could take adenosine, adenosine, adenosine can be administered, or we can administer verapamil, verapamil. Look up this medication. So a client who's having atrial fibrillation, a client who has ventricular tachycardia, meaning the ventricles are beating faster. And when you look at the blood pressure, the ventricles on the BP are represented by diastolic blood pressure. Those are ventricular interpretation of the heartbeat. Lop dop. The dop is for the ventricle. The lop is for the atria. When blood enters the heart, the first sound you hear, that is an atrial sound. Those are the atria making the sound or the upper valve. Now, these upper valves are what you are hearing. If the blood is leaving the ventricle, going into other the lungs to get O2 or going into systemic circulation from the left ventricle, the next sound we hear is the dop sound. So the lop dop um, is ventricular sound. When those lop dop are faster, we are having ventricular tachycardia. And in such condition, we need to take one of these medications, the amiodarone, the adenosine, or the verapamil. And then uh, if the client has it with pause, meaning, well, sorry, if the client has it with pause, meaning if the client has this particular ventricular tachycardia with pause, we're giving this, this medication. Now, or if these drugs are not working or want to bring in a faster, uh, a faster procedure, would we'll do synchronized cardioversion. The client will use for the procedure. The client will use what we call synchronized, synchronized um, cardioversion. Cardioversion. Look up this procedure on YouTube. How can we how, how can we provide synchronized cardioversion? Look at it on YouTube and, and look at the nursing management when we are providing the client with synchronized cardioversion then um the last portion of this uh dysrhythmia we look at the last area um the last portion would be when a client has ventricular tachycardia with up pulse in the first area we talked about just a while ago uh, just now before i raised the ball we talked about ventricular tachycardia with pulse so if the client has 
one ventricular tachycardia without pause without pause what can we do two if the client has a ventricular fibrillation ventricular fibrillation in these two conditions the client will take amiodarone the client can take one amiodarone for the condition two the client can also take lidocaine the client can take also epinephrine epinephrine so the client can take one of these medications amiodarone lidocaine or epinephrine when the client is having ventricular fibrillation or the client having ventricular tachycardia without pulse they can take one of these medications now if these drugs would take longer time to work for us and we need some emergency then we give the client the client will go through defibrillation defibrillation can be the hallmark for the day so the client will do the procedure called cardiac defibrillation so in short we do defibrillation with the client who's having ventricular tachycardia without pause and when they also have ventricular fibrillation we can do cardioversion when the client has atrial fibrillation what do we do we do cardioversion now i will understand this in atrial conditions what do we do we do cardioversion when the client is having a ventricular problem we do for the client uh defibrillation now but not all the ones specifically named under this procedure is what we do for the client if the client has ventricular tachycardia without without pause we do the cardioversion if the client has it with pause we do the synchronized uh or when the client has it without pause we do defibrillation if the client has it with pause we do the synchronized cardioversion i want to remember these things very well and know them for the ankle it is important for the ankles um when we meet the next time we'll look at each script when the client has ventricular tachycardia without pause how will the ekg pattern appears if the client has it with pause how will it appear if the client has bradycardia how will it appear these are things i would will look at and will understand that's why we are here if we do not understand it we stay on the so i will make sure that we understand ekg that when you see an ekg pattern you will have the basic idea to recognize what's happening to the client now um i will give you a gist of both cardioversion and defibrillation before i leave this session let's look at what is cardioversion let's look at what is defibrillation and i want you to look at look them up also on youtube and see what's happening when we provide a client of cardioversion or we'll do the we'll get a client defibrillation those are things i want you to understand let's look at cardioversion what we do basically in cardioversion and what we do in defibrillations now cardioversion is when we deliver shock to the client 
who's having this who, who's having a problem so when a client has atrial problem it could be atrial fibrillation it could be the supraventricular tachycardia it could be ventricular tachycardia with pause if the client has this problem or one of these problems will give the client cardioversion and that is will deliver shock to the client so um cardioversion is just the delivery of a direct shock to the heart synchronized to the qrs complex so we are delivering shock to the heart to uh, activate the qrs complex of the heart now when we do defibrillation we are providing the heart with an unsynchronized direct counter shock in this case so in cardioversion we provide a synchronized shock or counter shock to the heart in defibrillation we provide a direct unsynchronized shock to the heart now in defibrillations um defibrillation stops all cardiac activities when we when we provide a client of defibrillation it stops all the cardiac activities that are going on including the, the heartbeat now defibrillation allows the sa node it allows the sa node to initiate heartbeat so when here we provide a client with defibrillation we are providing the client with a shock that will enable the client to what to stop all cardiac activities and then the SA node will initiate the heartbeat. That's what happened in the case of cardiac defibrillation. Now, um, when we talk about the SA node, we'll look at it in a, for, uh, in a few minutes from now. We have the SA node. The SA node is uh, the chief instrument that initiates heart impulses, heartbeat. And that's why the S8 node is located at the red ventricle. So you have the heart in this diagram. Um, you have it here like this. You have, this is the right atria. You have up here, you have the two veins, the superior vena cava, the SVC, and you have the IVC, the inferior vena cava. Now, when blood has been used, when blood has been deoxygenized uh, from the systemic circulation, meaning the organs, our body cells, our tissues have used the O2 from the blood, the blood returns to the heart through the superior and inferior vena cavas. That uh, those are the two receiving veins that are linked to the heart, and they are linked at the red atria of the heart. In this red atria of the heart. Up here is where we have the S8 node. Because when blood enters the heart from that portion, the heart does not have the ability to uniquely initiate heartbeat. Those chambers do not have powerhouses to initiate heartbeat. The powerhouse of the, of the heart that initiates heartbeat, meaning it initiates electrical impulses, to begin pumping blood again after one systemic completion of blood circulation that powerhouse is the SA node so the SA node will start because that's the first part of the heart that blood returns to the heart so the SA node begins the heartbeat pattern at that point now 
In short, this S A naught is what when we provide defibrillation, uh, we provide defibrillation. So the defibrillation we are providing, it is being provided to stop, to shut down every cardiac activities. So the client goes into complete dormancy. Everything about the heart rate, the heart beats, everything stops when we provide defibrillation. We are doing that because we want to allow the SA naught to come in and do its work by initiating heartbeat, cardiac impulses. That's the reason why we are providing the defibrillation to the heart. So um, then for the cardiac version, cardiac version is an elective treatment. When we do cardiac version, it is an elective treatment, cardiac version, it is an elective treatment, elective treatment um, of atrial dysrhythmia. So whenever there is an atrial dysrhythmia, we can provide this particular cardio version. When there is a supraventricular tachycardia, I want us to write these things down. Listening to them is one thing and looking at them after this particular class is another thing. In, in the case of atrial dysrhythmia, the client will go through um, cardioversion. When the client has supraventricular tachycardia, I'm sorry to interrupt. The, the client also go through cardioversion. And when there is a ventricular tachycardia with pause, the client also go through cardioversion. Cardioversion is the treatment of choice. It is the treatment of choice for clients who are symptomatic. I repeat, cardioversion is the treatment of choice for individuals with cardiac dysrhythmia who are having symptoms, who we can see them, we can detect their symptoms just by looking at them. So the treatment of choice for them is cardioversion. So when a client has atrial dysrhythmia, when a client has supraventricular tachycardia, when a client has ventricular tachycardia with pulse, the treatment of choice is cardioversion. All this I'm naming here, it comes with symptoms. You will see the client having the symptoms of what I'm talking about here. So in such conditions, the client will take, will do for the client cardioversion. Now, if the client has a ventricular fibrillation or the client is having pulseless ventricular tachycardia, the client will undergo defibrillation. So for defibrillation, when the client has ventricular fibrillation with, with, uh, without pulse, meaning the client is having pulseless ventricular tachycardia, the client will undergo defibrillation. We have to understand when can we cardiovert the client or when can we defibrillate the client. And whenever we do defibrillation, we are stopping all cardiac activities to allow the S8 node to initiate, to begin, to start a heartbeat so that the heart can go back. It's like you are resetting the heart. Whenever you cardiovert the heart, you are resetting the heart, the, uh, the heart. 
So like your phone, when your phone is having problem, it's not, uh, the internet is not working, you call AT&T, you call um, uh, T-Mobile, you call H2O, but whatever phone company you with, when you call them, they'll ask you, <clears throat> do you have additional, do you have any other phone with you that we can call you on when the call is, when we lost the call? You said no. So, okay, go to setting, do this, do that, press this, press reset. When you press reset, what happened to the phone? The phone goes off for a few seconds and the phone, they will ask you to put the phone off, put the phone back on after one or two or three minutes. So after the required time, you switch your phone on and then your phone will be reset. So when you have this problem, when you defeat with the client, you are resetting the heart pattern in short. Now, uh, <clears throat> for the procedure, the client will have atrial problem. Um, they receive an unknown duration of anticoagulant for four to six weeks before the cardioversion therapy. And that's why you will see in these nursing homes when the client is going for cardioversion therapy, we put a client on anticoagulant, heparin or coumadine, let's say like coumadine for this amount of time. Or the client get on anisoparin, the low weight, the low molecular weight heparin. Set the amount of time before they go for the procedure because in the procedure, when we do the cardioversion, <clears throat> the client might have um, blood clots coming into the blood. So we are, they might have blood clots being dislodged. So when we administer this anticoagulant, it prevent, they prevent the dislodgement of blood clots during the procedure. And that's the reason why the client is going to get on this medication for four to six weeks before the procedure. The inkler will ask you, a client who is scheduled to do a cardioversion, ask the nurse, why did my doctor put me on anticoagulant for this amount of time before my procedure? The reason is to prevent the, 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 the dislodgement of the clot before or during the procedure. Now, um, we have to explain to the client the procedure, we obtain informed consent, want to administer O2 as required, document the pre-procedure heart rhythm, want to make sure we have those emergency equipment when the client is doing the cardioversion. Want to also digoxin, if the client is on digoxin, we should hold it for two days, 48 hours. So digoxin is withheld. Digoxin um, should be on hold for 48 hours prior to the cardioversion. So these are drugs you want to stop. The angler will ask you, a client who has had this heart problem for this amount of time is going for cardioversion. What medication the client receiving a day before the procedure with a nurse question and they will have all these medication including digoxin so we have to hold digoxin when the client is going for the procedure cardioversion now what to administer sedative as prescribed ensure that there is proper placement of the leads on the client on the client body parts again so you want to take a look at how can we do the ekg lead placement when the client is going for this procedure all staff must stand clear um the client is in an upright position and then uh, all staff must stand clear of the client equipments are connected to the client and the bed when a shock is delivered cardioversion requires 
activation of the synchronizers button of the machine. So when we're doing cardio version, we are providing a synchronized shock to the client. So in cardio version, the nurse will push the, synchronized, uh, the synchronizing button on the machine because we are providing a what? A synchronized direct counter shock to the client. When we are doing defibrillation, we are providing an unsynchronized counter shock to the client. Understand those jargons we are using and understand why they are being used for the English. Now, um, we make sure failure to synchronize can lead to development of complete uh, the person might die from it if we are providing the client. Remember, when, the, when we defibrillate, right, we are shutting down the heart, meaning we are giving the client an unsynchronized cardio, uh, an, we are giving the client an unsynchronized direct counter shock. Because the client is having like a, the client is having like a heart problem, we want to shut down the heart and initiate a new heartbeat. Now, on the other hand, if the client is going through cardioversion, wherein we want to stimulate the heart to increase the heartbeat, and then we mistakenly did not press the synchronized button, and we administer the shock, the client might die on the scene. So it is important that we are providing these things for the client in cardioversion, wherein we are providing the client with synchronized counter shock we have to press the synchronized button or the synchronizer button on the machine if we do not press that button and we administer the shock the client can die instantly it is a complete no no that's why you will ask you some some machines can talk press this button do this but there are machines that might not talk. So when you are providing the client with cardio version, a synchronized shock or counter shock to the client, you must press the synchronizing button on the machine. Now, um, we can perform CPR um, for clients who are having cardiac asysto. When the client has cardiac asysto, we can do CPR for the client or when the client has pulseless rhythm we can do cpr that's why in cpr you always want to see why the client is having pause so when there is no pause the client can take the cpr um now like i said if we fail to synchronize it leads to a development of a letter dysrhythmia such as the client will have ventricular fibrillation and the client might have um this particular problem and it can lead to the client's death in this case so make sure we look at that look at that now defibrillate the client immediately for ventricular fibrillation so if the client has ventricular fibrillation we have to defibrillate the client so let's agree that let's, let's agree that we were providing the client with a with cardioversion and mistakenly we did not press the synchronizer and we went and administered a shock to the client and the client went into ventricular uh the client went into ventricular fibrillation at that point in time we have to immediately 
administer different relation. Stop all cardiac activities and allow the SA node to initiate the heartbeat. I repeat, in the instant you want to provide a client with a synchronized card uh, with a synchronized counter shock in the case of cardioversion, wherein we're supposed to press the synchronizing button on the machine and mistakenly we did not press that button and we introduce the shock to the client's heart or to the client's body. The client going to have immediate ventricular fibrillation, which is which is a serious life-threatening condition. So if that happens, if that ever happens in our life or in the English, the first thing we'll do is to provide a client with excuse me, to provide a client with defibrillation. So we'll come in and defibrillate the client because the treatment of choice for ventricular fibrillation is defibrillation. So we'll come and provide a client with defibrillation to stop all cardiac activities and allow the S8 node to initiate the heartbeat. That's what happened in there. Now, um, we also will administer other drugs we talk about, those prescribed anti-arrhythmic agents. Um, we'll provide that for the client. And uh, like we talk about, like the amiodarone, the lidocaine, the epinephrine, yes, you can go ahead and provide those for the client. Uh, we also monitor the client for pulmonary symptoms. The client might have pulmonary embola after defibrillation or after the cardioversion. We monitor for that. And when there is a pulmonary embolism, meaning blood clot has dislodged from other body parts and is traveling or it has traveled towards the lungs which is a medical emergency that the client would, would need. Any question? So pacemaker, it is, uh, it is what initiates the heartbeat. But we are looking at the artificial pacemaker, a machine or an, a little equipment or a little metal that has a battery in it that helps to initiate heartbeat is what we are looking at. So pacemaker is a battery operated device that stimulates the heart when the natural pacemaker, the, which is the SA node and, other, and, and others, uh, fail to maintain an acceptable rhythm. So once we have an abnormal rhythm in a heart and the heart cannot maintain a normal rhythm or normal pattern, then we want to start to look for an artificial pacemaker, which we are talking about here. Um, sometimes it could be permanent or it could be for just short period of time, which we call temporary. So whether it's temporary or permanent, it has, various, it has two parts. So the pacemaker has two parts. The pacemaker has um, one, the pulse, a generator, the pulse generator, and it has the control center. This, I guess, isn't not really important, but just know that it has two parts. Um, it has a battery um, that helps to generate impulses, which is the pulse generator, and it contains, like I said, the control center. Um, in this particular pacemaker 
um, it is it is it has wires like any other electrical appliance it has a wire that attached to the myocardium of the of the heart muscle so the wires has negative and positive charges that are attached to the heart muscles that releases power to the heart muscle to initiate heartbeat that's just about the pacemaker so nurses must be familiar with different kinds of pacemaker there are different kinds of pacemaker that we need to understand um we should understand how to care for a client of pacemaker what are those procedures the client cannot do when the client has a pacemaker we should also understand the conduction of electrical impulses with the heart normal or when the heart has pacemaker um we have to understand now this is about it but let's look at the pacemaker now in a short-term pacemaker so we have basically we have short-term pacemaker which you call temporary pacemaker the temporary temporary pacemaker under here um what is important here is the energy source is provided by an external battery pack so under here the energy source comes from outside so they have a battery that is outside that gets that provides the energy for this extent for this uh temporary pacemaker so meaning that it's just temporary so it, the battery is not in the heart muscle it is outside the heart it's just providing energy for short time after that we remove it and then the client goes home now we have um two types the external and the epicardia it's not important to really go deep into that but just want to understand that this one has um it has uh an external source of power then we have the next one is the permanent pacemaker permanent pacemaker in this permanent pacemaker um it contains an internal pacing unit so this has an internal pacing unit, meaning the entire two parts we talk about those two parts including the machine is everything is within the heart it's within the chest it is not outside that's why it means so these are things i just want to i just want to just want to understand under here about the pacemaker now in the pacemaker um let's look at the this can diagnose when a client has symptomatic bradycardia the client will need a pacemaker when a client has a complete heart block they will need a pacemaker when a client is having sick sinus syndrome they will need a pacemaker when, they, when there's a sinus arrest when there is an asystole remember we just said when a client has ventricular asystole or atrial asystole the client will need a pacemaker so when a client has an asystole condition they will need a pacemaker when a client has atrial tachycardia dysrhythmia they will need a pacemaker when a client has ventricular tachycardia they will need a pacemaker now we have to read under here keenly and understand what we do what, what, what we're talking here in the end class they will give a very ekg pattern 
and we'll observe that the client is having asystole. And the angler will ask us, what is the treatment for the asystole condition? So in such a condition, in asystole, the client would need, um, the client would need a, pace, a pacemaker. So you will have the pacemaker there, you will have the medication there, and you will have other things, a cardiac version. In this case, the client would need a pacemaker when the client is having asystolic condition. So the client will have dizziness, the client will be anxious, they will have fatigue, they will have breathing difficulties, they're going to have chest pains, they will have palpitation. These are symptoms they're going to have when they are having uh, uh, this when they are when they are in need of pacemaker. Um, what is important here is um, when the client when the client is going through the procedure, assess the client knowledge about the procedure, how the client understands the procedure. The client has adequate understanding of the procedure. If the client does not have, you explain the procedure, the procedure to the client. Um, it is if it is non emergency we do that but if it is emergency you don't go through that um tell the client about everything about the pacemaker and i want you to to, to, to to just read about it and know the basic information about it for the after the procedure after the procedure document the time and the date at which the pacemaker was inserted you want to put in the model of the pacemaker, the setting, the rhythm strips, blood pressure, the vital signs. You want to monitor the client continuous heart rate, compare the EKG rate or the EKG diagram to the pre-procedure diagram and report any abnormality to the doctor. You want to also uh, provide the client with analgesia as prescribed Want to obtain an X-ray after the placement of the, of, the, of, the, of the pacemaker? We need to do an X-ray to confirm the placement, the location of the pacemaker. We want to also obtain this chest X-ray to check why the client is having hemothorax, pneumothorax, or pleural effusion. Which we, at this point we should know what is pneumothorax, what is hemothorax, what is pleural effusion. Now we want to also understand the signs and symptoms of these complications of this procedure the hemothorax the pneumothorax pleural effusion what the client going to show when the client has pleural effusion these are things i want you to understand when going through the topic in this manner um i also you want to monitor the incision site for bleeding or hematoma or infection after setting a monitor or after 48 hours um you want to assess the client for hiccups which can indicate that the generator is pacing the diagram. So if the client is having hiccups in this condition, the generation, the generator is pacing in the di in the diaphragm, which is not normal. So the client is having hiccups. You want to also maintain the client's safety. Um, you want to, for the permanent pacemaker, provide a client with identification cards including the name of the manufacturer of the pacemaker, the number, the model number, the mode of function, and the battery lifespan. These are things that go on the pacemaker, on the client hand, when the client having an identifier, because you need to have this when you go around. Sometimes the client might fall off, 
and the windows know how the client has a pacemaker or not these are things the client have to have this the bracelet on your arm so these are things you will look out for the client any question on the pacemaker coronary artery bypass graft now in these procedures it's going to come in the angles a lot coronary artery bypass graft peripheral uh you look at you see all these things in the ankle and they will ask the weirdest question about these things and most of this most of the questions that they're going to ask about this procedure is about um nursing management a client who is undergoing coronary artery bypass graft what is the nurse most important concern this has occurred what would the nurse do all of those answers you will find them under nursing management for these procedures in coronary artery bypass graft it is an invasive procedure we call it coronary artery bypass graft it is an invasive procedure that aims to restore vascularization of the myocardium so in this procedure there will be a blockade in how blood flows within the heart blood distribution system so when we do the coronary artery bypass graft procedure we are restoring the best medium the best ways in which blood can be delivered to the heart myocardium um performed to bypass an obstruction in one or more of the coronary arteries why the coronary arteries the coronary arteries are those arteries that supply blood or, or that distribute blood to the heart itself the system the heart uses to provide blood to the body it is not the same system the heart will use to provide blood to itself so the heart system that provides itself with blood circulation is what we call the coronary system so when you're coronary you are talking about the heart own system through which it supplies itself with blood so when there's a blockade on, on there are blockade in this pathway we need to do the procedure called coronary artery bypass graft to bypass those obstructions and keep on providing the heart with blood if the heart itself does not have blood the heart cannot pump blood to any other body part they are going to it's going to have a problem <clears throat> in short um coronary artery bypass graft um does not alter arteriosclerotic process but also improve the quality of life for clients who have painful artery heart disease the coronary artery bypass graft is most effective when a client has sufficient ventricular function that is when a client has an ejection fraction rate above 50 percent the procedure will be very effective um in coronary artery bypass graft for older clients they will most likely experience a transient neurological uh, problem or changes they will also experience some toxic effect from those cardiac medication that they will take or from some of those 
cardiac procedure when a client is having dysrhythmia or irregular heart pattern. They're going to experience these things. Um, so the client will do this procedure to restore some form of a regularity in blood transmission or blood distribution to the, to the heart when there's a blockade. That's why we are doing the coronary artery bypass graft procedure. Um, if the client has more than 50% of a blockade within the heart, then the client will need um, stent placement or we cannot assess angioplastic or stenting of the heart. So in this case, um, the client will have persistent ischemia, meaning blood deprivation to the heart, or the client might have myocardial infarction. Because this is how the heart goes into MI. If there's, there's a blockade, and portion of the heart is not getting blood, meaning it is ischemic, this, is, this ischemia will create soul on the heart myocardium. And when the soul is healed, what happens? It leaves a scar on the heart myocardium. And that scar is what we call the infarct, which we call myocardial infarction. So there is a mark, there's a killer, there's a soul mark, or there's a scar left on the heart due to obstruction that are going to cause ischemia of the heart that will lead to scar formation. And it is that scar tissue we call myocardial infarction in MR. So um, the client will have these problems uh, following angiography, maybe during PCR or when there's a stent placement, the client will have this complication. Um, when there's a heart failure, with <clears throat> there can be heart failure with shock. When the client, when the heart goes into cardiogenic shock, there can be heart, which is heart failure. Um, this might not be a reasonable, a reasonable reason for the client needs for improvement in, <coughs> in their cardiovascular. 